Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, We are continuing to look at the first church, the church in community, and what God was doing through that church at that time. Now, uh, this handsome individual that you're going to see is a gentleman by the name of... There he is. His name is Hans von Zeiten. Oh, and the next guy is uh, another individual named Peter Cartwright. Now, Hans von Zeiten lived in the 1700s. He was a general for... uh, uh, Oh, gosh, I lost his name. Hold up. Frederick. I wanted to say Ferdinand. That's Spain. I'm caught on that for a moment. Frederick the Great, king of Prussia. Frederick the Great put together uh, a little uh, party, and he invited all of his generals and, and the lords and, and important people, said, hey, come to this party. And uh, Mr. Hans there, General Hans, as a matter of fact, said, thank you, sir, king, but I can't. We're taking communion at church that night, so I can't be there. Well, it's not really something you're do when your king summons you, you go. But he didn't, and he was a a well-respected general. As a matter of fact, when he retired, he was probably one of the top advisors to Frederick the Great. He lived to be 86, which was incredible because he was in 74 duels. That means he was a good shot or good at dodging, one or the other. Um, But Hans said, no, I can't come, and king was fine with that. Well, not too long, uh, not too much time later, they had another little get-together, and Hans could make that one. They weren't having church that night, but they, they mocked him while he was there. They made fun of the fact that he had missed the last one because, you know, Mr. Church Boy had to go to church. So, Hans did what you're not supposed to do. We learned, kind of learned this when we went through Esther over the last few weeks in Sunday school. Some of us did. He stood up in front of the king and said, um, excuse me, king. Already we're uh, 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 treading on some thin ice. He said, My lord, there is a greater king than you, a king to whom I have sworn allegiance even unto death. I am a Christian, and I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored and his character belittled. Now, Mr. Hines could have gotten his head lopped off for that, but instead of getting mad at him and and because all the guests were just waiting, all he did, you know, he's gone. They just knew he was. King took the hand of the general and he asked his forgiveness. And like I said, he became one of his greatest uh, counselors for the rest of his life. And the king said he had never again allow that sort of tra- travesty to be made of, secu- of sacred and uh, uh, of sacred things. Peter Cartwright, we move forward a few years. Peter Cartwright was a preacher in the late 1800s. Uh, He was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher. He started off in Kentucky, and then he moved up into uh, Illinois. And one Sunday, he was preaching at uh, a church in uh, Illinois and was told that Andrew Jackson, at this time just General Andrew Jackson. He would soon be president, but at this time he was General Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was no, um, uh, no per- he hadn't, didn't have high moral standing, General Jackson didn't. Uh, he goes to church that day, which was good. Somebody warned Reverend Cartwright, said, be careful what you say uh, because 
the president's coming. So Reverend Cartwright got up. He said, I understand General Jackson is in the congregation today. If General Jackson does not repent of his sin and follow Jesus, he will go to hell. Well, uh, another preacher later on apologized to General Jackson for Reverend Cartwright's bluntness. And Jackson came back with uh, that, uh, first of all, said that Christ's ministers ought to love everybody and fear no mortal man. But then said, if I had a, an army of men like Reverend Cartwright, I could take over any any, uh, I, I could overwhelm any other army. So, two men here as, as examples who stood before someone of power and was willing to stand up for the truth. Well, we can go back a lot further, and we're going to, uh, to see two other men who stood for the truth in the midst of attack, opposi opposition, and persecution. We're going to go back to about 33 A.D. with Peter and John in front of the Jewish leadership. Now, they've, all, they've just healed this lame man who uh, was born lame, and, and some 5,000 people get saved that day because of the testimony, because of the message uh, that Peter and John have. So the next day, we see in Acts 4, uh, or rather, they, they, uh, these leaders come up on them. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 is where we're going to start. While they were speaking to the people, uh, Peter and John, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So here's where we... Uh, learn the number of folks that got saved because of the message of Peter and John there in Solomon's colonnade. But the leaders here uh, hear that the leaders here, H-E-R-E, here, H-E-A-R, that Peter and John are preaching this message, and they did not approve of this message. Uh, the, 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 the people in authority did not give Peter and John the permission to say these things. So that's why they show up. They, 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 while they were speaking, I mean, in the middle of the sermon, the leaders of the, uh, the temple, uh, the Jewish leaders, come and uh, interrupt the message. And it's the Sadducees that confront them, primarily. It's, uh, it says the, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees. The, the priests would have been uh, the, the ones who did the labor, the captain, just what it sounds like, it's the security chief. And then you have the Sadducees. Now what do we know about the Sadducees? A couple of things that are important for this part of Scripture about the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. Uh, they, they were, uh, Pharisees did. Uh, they were kind of two split uh, two groups in Judaism at the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and there was another group called the Essenes, and they were the ones out in the desert living by themselves. That's where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, much of them. That's who, who preserved them. So, but these two groups we hear, more, we hear about in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and they were only slightly religious. Pharisees were super religious. Sadducees were only slightly 
religious, and they were much more interested in political gain. The Sadducees wanted to marry Judaism with Rome so they could uh, get all the benefits, all the perks. They were generally the wealthy folks who had something to lose if Rome got mad at the Jews and kicked them out. So they wanted to use their religion in order to uh, make political, uh, to, to get political gain and worm their way into government offices. I won't point out in any way that that might parallel some things that happen in our own government sometimes. They see this message, they hear this message, and, and not only do they have a problem with the message, there is no resurrection, but they like this political inciting, insider work that they can do, so they don't like that the guys are possibly stirring up the message. They're certainly jealous of this group of people that is following uh, Peter and John and learning about this political usurper, they would say, named Jesus. Uh, they saw that their power and their influence over the people was being, were being taken away. They no longer could control the people they wanted to. And, and y'all, we see this today in, in communist governments, in, in just pure secular governments. They don't want Christianity in their country because they no longer have power. When, when somebody can tell a government, you can kill me, but I don't care, what do you have left? I mean, how can you coerce? How can you manipulate when that is the, the answer you get? Well, that's uh, what these Sadducees saw happening. They were losing their power and their influence. So, verse 5, the next day, it's too late in the evening to do court. You know, they had to go home and lounge. Uh, the next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was not a Sadducee. But Paul could have been around. It's possible Paul was in the background watching what was going on because Paul was close to particularly uh, Caiaphas. So brings in these disciples, and their question is, who gave you permission to preach this message? Who gave you the permission to talk about this Jesus and the, the resurrection? See, Paul, uh, Peter and John were countering a long-held belief and tradition. For, for the Sadducees, it was no resurrection, and they would argue with the Pharisees about it. We agree on Yahweh but they would argue about what books to read, what, what part of the Bible, the Old Testament was true, resurrection and that sort of thing. And Peter and John were getting off, of, off track on both of them. The Pharisees nor the Sadducees really liked them because their message didn't fit. They were countering everything these guys were teaching that gave them their power, gave them their authority. And to them, to the Sadducees, to this group, to the, the leadership here, on this day, their power was more important than what God was doing right in front of them. 
And we're going to see that they, there wasn't much they could do about this lame man who could now could walk. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't argue with it. They couldn't, they, they couldn't uh, uh, you know, make him lame again. They couldn't do any of that, so they kind of will just have to forget that. But here it was. Here was the example. Here was the, the proof standing literally in front of them, and they completely disregarded it. Uh, miracles often don't change people's minds. We, we ask sometimes, well, what if we could do the miracles like Jesus did? You'd get responses like Jesus did. You'd get Peter and John doing a miracle, and they're saying, who told you you could do a miracle? Instead of, oh my gosh, you did a miracle, maybe what you're preaching is true, it was, who told you you could do that? Later on in Acts, and we'll get there, some of the leaders, when they would listen to, to I believe it was Paul in this case, if I'm not mistaken, I might be, uh, said, if I can't let you keep talking, you might even convince me, he said. I mean, he, they, they, they knew the power of the message. They could see what was going on, but they refused to do it. They would not give up their power in order to see what God was doing, because that's what would happen. If, if they stood back, stepped back and said, you know what, something, God is doing something here, and it's not the way I thought it would be done, and it's not using the techniques I would use, I'm going to step back and let this go. No, I'm going to fight this to the end because you are not going to do it differently than what we have done and been teaching. Acts then tells us, Luke then tells us in Acts that Peter responded, verse 8, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing there before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given to people by which we must be saved. This quick sermon, this little defense, has a lot uh, in, in uh, common with the sermon in Acts chapter 2, where he tells the people that were listening, uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, he says... Uh, let me let me let me find it. And they were pierced. It says, verse thirty-six. There it is. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Then, once he heals this lame man at the beautiful gate and gets uh, the opportunity to preach to the people who saw it in chapter three, he says um, in verse thirteen. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you, the people, handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And then now, when he gets an opportunity to speak, not just to the people, not just to the general population, but to the leaders of the temple of the day, he doesn't hold back again. He says that uh, you, 
This is the stone rejected by you builders, you who are supposed to know. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. You should have seen this. You should have seen him and known who he was. You should have seen that he was the stone that you were going to build the faith on. The cornerstone was exactly what it sounds like. sat at the corner, and the two walls put most of their weight on that cornerstone, and you built the rest of the building from that cornerstone. He's telling them, you have built a house on the wrong foundation. You had the foundation stone here, and you ignored it you didn't recognize it i'm here again he says with this lame man who's no longer lame and you still don't see it well all of this was incredible for this uneducated man we're going to see because the holy spirit just as he had promised or just as jesus had promised gave peter the words to say in 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 this moment where I would have probably shut down or said something sarcastic that just got me in more trouble. Peter presents the gospel clearly, explicitly, without fear, as far as we can tell. We know it was with boldness. And in a manner that showed the listeners their sinfulness, you crucified Jesus, you rejected the stone, but then also how they must repent of that. See, he tells the leaders that Jesus had given the authority and the healing. I talked about a couple of weeks ago that the name Jesus, the five letters, J-E-S-U-S, or Yeshua as they would have said it in Hebrew, has no mystical, magical power. We don't say that word and demons uh, just kind of run, run away. The power is not in the name, but... Uh, 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 but is from whom the name belongs to. Yeah, there we go. No, to whom the name belongs. There we go. There, there's the correct grammar. Uh, it, the, the power is there. The power is in the source. So Jesus had given Peter and John the authority. Peter didn't do anything on his own. Peter wasn't able to heal people. Peter wasn't magical, and Peter knew that. He only healed because of Jesus. And Jesus had put these two men, Peter and John, James we'll see later as well, in, in positions of leadership in the church, and he filled them in their time of need. He, he showed them what to say. He showed them what to do. He gave them boldness, and he took away their fear. And because of that, because of the Holy Spirit working in them, they pointed out, first, the leader's responsibility. You sinned. You are a sinner. You killed the Savior. But just like the uh, message to the people in the colonnade, just like the message on the day of Pentecost, there was a way out because he also showed the exclusivity of Jesus. Maybe, maybe one of the, I'll say top three anyway, verses about Jesus and his ability to save Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. John 3.16 would be one of the, the top three, and I think John, 16, uh, John 14.6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. 
no name by which we must be saved. So he's telling them, your tradition, your, your rules, the, the way you have taught for all these years, that's not going to save you. That will not save you. Well, this kind of befuddled and, 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 and uh, confused the, the leaders. Verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and, re- and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's kind of hard to argue with the evidence, isn't it? Verse 15, after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them. Clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. This is where you need the face palm emoji in the Bible. They know. They see it. It's clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And yet they go on to deny the very one who caused it. Verse 17, But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, at all in the name of Jesus. See, they, they didn't care about salvation. They didn't care about the people. They didn't care about getting the message of repentance out. All they cared was, they're going to stir up a a little revolution here if we're not careful, and we're going to lose all of our power. We're not going to be able to make the rules anymore and get what we want, so they didn't like it. See, the leaders knew something was special. They knew that, guys, there's there's no way these two did that, And there's no way that these two came up with that response on their own. As a matter of fact, they said, they recognized, they remembered that they had been with Jesus. No, I I, I will not argue with God's wording of his scriptures. And that probably is the conversation, no, no, that is the conversation that the Sanhedrin had. This is an aside. You wonder how we know the conversation they had in there? Who did I say was probably in there? Paul. So, we, we got some inside knowledge later on. But they sat there and, and, and said, they've been with Jesus. They were wrong. They had it as past tense. It was present tense. They were with Jesus, or maybe Jesus was with them. He was there. He was in their midst. He was in them. He was speaking through them by his Holy Spirit. Peter and John were still with Jesus. We are still with Jesus. He is still, still with us. And the change that they saw was the proof. They didn't, they, why did they argue? It was Again, literally standing right in front of them. The change in that lame man was the proof. They couldn't argue with the proof. They couldn't deny the proof. They couldn't say anything negative about the proof. All they could do was try to preserve their power by getting Peter and John to shut up. Well, as we all know, 
That's not easy to do with somebody that likes to talk, to get them to shut up. Verses 19 through 20. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. You decide, religious leaders. You decide, O oh, knowledgeable ones of the Scripture, whether we're supposed to listen to you or listen to God. You decide. But we, for we, are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, this had been a good story if, after the Sanhedrin spoke, and as Peter and John were walking out of the room, Peter leaned over to John and said, well, they can decide whether we, we should obey them or God, but we're going we're to keep talking. And that had been a pretty good story, and we were like, oh, yeah, they're defiant. <laughs> but uh, Peter didn't whisper. I don't know that Peter, Peter had a whisper mode, uh, just based on what we read of him in the New Testament. He says to them, Fine, y'all. Y'all decide what you think we should do, which is more important, y'all or God. You decide who's on the throne. We will keep talking. He made it clear to them that they weren't going to shut up. They challenged the false authority of those who desired to keep their power, desired to keep the people enslaved to a false religion that would only send them to hell. They desired to keep the people at bay and not allow them to have the salvation that was offered to everyone. See, the leaders, maybe, possibly, remember they weren't very religious, supposed they were doing God's will. But they were actually opposing his mission. Saul, Paul, on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? You know, Paul going, going through his head at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm killing Christians. I'm not persecuting you, Lord. But he knew, he knew. He knew what he meant. It was, it was no surprise to him. But Paul thought he was doing God's will by persecuting Christians. And Jesus shows up and says, no, no, you are actually opposing my mission. And that's what the Sadducees were doing here. They were opposing the mission. And Peter and John said, we've got no option. We have to follow Jesus. We have to speak for him. When he leads in a direction, that's where we go. If, if you're in our way, you get run over. If you're not going to follow us, we'll go by ourselves, but we will follow Jesus. The message was too important for Peter and John to allow a few to intimidate them. John would live a long life, probably die uh, alone or just with a few people on the island of Patmos. Peter would be, uh, in just a few years... Um, crucified very likely upside down according to, tra tra to tradition uh, intimidation is the least of the persecution of the opposition that Peter and John experienced but none of it slowed the message down the church faced opposition and they responded 
with obedience to the mission. Verses 21 through 22. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Here's, here's Luke talking about the medical aspects again. Uh, just making it clear, there's, it wasn't therapy, it wasn't uh, a slight uh, alteration in his ankle, it wasn't something that Peter picked up along the way fishing, oh, if you just take his ankle, you know, he's fine now. It wasn't, no, they knew this was a lifelong thing on an old guy, over 40. <clears throat> they knew this was not an accident. They knew that this was not something Peter did, and the people got it. See, the end goal, the purpose, the result of anything God does through his people is not to glorify the people, but to praise and glorify God. That is the end result. If we are lifted up, if we are praised, if we are honored, we are doing something wrong. If we are praised and honored, because later on Paul and Apollos, they're going to be called gods at one point in one town. And they, oh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Let me point you to God. We are not. We don't get the glory. We don't get the praise. God does. Here we see the people intuitively understood it. They, they were a religious people already, a people who... Uh, worshipped God and not man anyway. So when they saw this happen, they immediately gave glory to God over what had been done. And Peter and John lived for that glory. And they did not allow the desires of men to deter their mission to give God glory through their lives, to praise and honor Him by obedience. You want to praise God? Obey Him. Do you want to glorify God? Obey Him. What are you talking about, Michael? I can praise God. I can sit here and worship. And No. No. Your worship is null and void if you are not being obedient to Him first. Obedience is better than sacrifice, Samuel told Saul. Saul worshipped but was disobedient. And he lost his kingdom because of it. The mission is more important than us. God, they realized in these verses, the sign of healing had been performed on this man. God had done something in their midst that only God could do. God, over and over and over, throughout the, 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 the book of Acts, we're going to see God does things only He can do. Peter and John and James and Paul later on and Luke and Barnabas and Silas and Apollos and Timothy and Titus, all these people were doing things and, and it was all only God. It was all only what God could do. His work and his mission could not be denied. When God moves on a people, when God moves in a people and things happen that only God can do, we must step back and say, we've got to do it this way. We've got to go this direction. We must follow Him. We cannot deny the work and the mission when God is doing things only He can do. So, what's our takeaway? Our take home this morning? Well, we today 
2018 have a mission and a, a message and a mission that will defy the authority figures. If we attempt obedience, if we see where God is working and try to join him there, we will defy authority figures. We will run afoul of people that don't want that done. They will be jealous like the Sadducees, jealous that people listen, jealous, jealous that people follow. They will be mad that their way of doing things, their ideas of how to save themselves. I mean, when, when, you, when you bank on the exclusivity of Jesus, you are telling people, you're wrong and I'm right. Raise your hand if you like to be told that. We don't even like to be told that when we know they're right. I knew a person, and I'm not going to call his name, but I knew a person who, uh, on a vacation one time, uh, we saw uh, uh, a historical marker about an event that happened. And then, weeks later, uh, uh, after the vacation, a discussion came up of, of what was on that sign, and well, it said this, the person said, and everybody else said, no, it didn't say that. It said this other thing. I know good and well it said this. No, it said something else. I know it said that. Well, it so happens that a picture was taken of the sign with the words on it. And so that picture was brought out. And see, it says what everybody else is saying right here, the opposite of what you're saying. Well, that's not right. Sometimes it just doesn't matter. People are going to be upset. They're going to be angry that, 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 that you say, no, there is an exclusive claim that Jesus makes that, that there is no name by, under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. They're not going to like that. They are going to attack when we share our message, when we are on mission, they will attack you. Because they don't want the change. They don't want their lives interrupted. They don't want to have to admit their sinfulness. They don't want to admit that they were wrong. And then once they attack, if that doesn't work, they will scheme. And once they scheme, if that doesn't work, they will lie. And they will stop at nothing to hinder the mission, the mission and the message. Because that mission and that message disrupts their life. And, and this, this, it can be politically, uh, a political response, it can be family that attacks you, it can be uh, church people that attack you, it can be friends, it can be enemies, it can be frenemies, it can, it can be anybody that doesn't want to hear the truth. And none of us really want to hear the truth if we believe a different truth. So our mission, our message is going to defy authority figures. Our message, message and mission remain the same regardless of who opposes it, though. It does not matter who says we're wrong. We stand on the truth of God's word. It does not matter who says, no, that is not how it should be. We say, yes, this is how it should be because this is what God's word says. 
This is our standard. This is what we go by. And when that time comes, when we must stand up for the message and the mission, when the opposition comes, we see through Scripture that the Holy Spirit will empower us, Jesus will intercede for us, and God will vindicate us. We are preaching His truth. We are preaching Jesus' gospel, and we are doing so through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it does not matter who comes against us. And when people do come against us, let the work of God be our loudest defense. I'm all for apologetics. If, if you don't know what that word, apologetics is defense of the faith. Uh, an intellectual defense, maybe. We, we prove how the Bible is historically accurate, and we go to archaeology and we see things, you know, and we use various arguments, various discussions in apologetics to prove the truth of God's word, and, and that's great. But ultimately, if we are not showing the result of our belief, the result of our obedience in our own lives, people will not believe the best of arguments the best of defenses, the best of apologetics, changed lives, renewed purpose, revived churches, those are our proof of the truth of God's word. Not your arguments. But do you live what you say you believe? The opposite of that, the flip of that, is that a heart of stone rejoices at no move of God. It doesn't matter how good things are, I'm going to find something negative about it. I'm going to find something bad about it. That is the point that we say, you know what? Your argument, your, your, your issue, your, your heart of stone, I'm just going to present the, the man born lame who's now walking. This is what God does. I'm going to present the, the, the person mired in sin from the darkest, deepest recesses of, of filth and evil who is now clean and say, this is what God does. I'm going to present the most pious, upstanding, pristine-looking individual who realized their pride their, was their sin, their Rejection of God was their destruction and present their brokenness to follow Jesus, even though on the outside they weren't sin, they weren't bad people, they weren't uh, evil. And present them and say, This is what the work of God does. That is our proof, that is our defense. And that's what no heart of stone rejoices over. And then when the message is received, the glory is God's alone. We didn't revive our church. We didn't make the message. We didn't work in that person's heart. We didn't save a single individual. God did it. And we give him the glory. Woe to us if we attempt to take his glory. Woe to us if we quench his spirit and we hinder his movements by our jealousy, by our authority structures, by our desire for power. Like von Zeiten, the first handsome man, we only have one king to whom we have sworn allegiance. 
one. Like Reverend Cartwright, we change the message and we change the mission for no one, regardless of their power, their standing, or their opposition. And like Peter, we only have one message, Jesus. And we want to allow God to do what only God can do. Here's our example, the lame man, what only God can do. What only God can do is save you. You cannot save yourself. We begin with the knowledge that God is holy and just and that he will judge sin. We know that to be the fact. We have to go from there. If that's who God is, we need to understand who we are. We are willfully sinful and fallen, and we are destined for everlasting torment and judgment. That is our end, but for Jesus. Jesus is the perfect Son of God. Jesus took our place and our sin on the cross. Jesus died for all people, and Jesus then rose three days later. That's our message. That's our exclusive claim. That is really the fly in the ointment for the rest of the world. But that is who we trust. That is who bought the salvation that fixes the God-us problem and bridges that gap. If we repent of our sin, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him and then we live for him, we turn our life around, we give it to him, we'll be saved. That's what only God can do. And when he does it, we give him the glory for it even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution. Our message does not change. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence in all situations. Thank you for your work in our hearts. Thank you for the example that our changed lives are and can be for those who need to experience the same kind of change. God, thank you for the definite nature of the exclusivity of Jesus. God, we don't have to question. We don't have to wonder if we got it right. We don't know, have to wonder if we've chosen the correct path. You have made it clear through your, through your word. There is only one way to you, and that is Jesus. Thank you for that clarity. And God, I pray this morning that regardless of what influences and what factors might be holding someone back from giving their heart and their life to you, that they would overcome that opposition today defy the whatever authority structure it is in their lives that says you don't need Jesus or you can't do that or you're too sinful, you're too far gone. Lord, I pray that you would quiet all those voices and may they only hear your spirit draw them this morning. And may they come to you and experience in their lives what only you can do. God, as believers, may we trust you that in our time of opposition, in our time of persecution, you'll give us the words, you'll give us the boldness, and God will give you the glory, no matter what the outcome eventually is. Lord, may we be bold in our stand for you as we live the example of the first church in our lives here 
in sulfur and wherever else we may go day to day. God, do it for your glory and in your name. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So that's what only God can do. Only God can save you. But what must you do? Well, you've got to make a decision this morning. You may not have tomorrow. You don't know how much longer you have. So will you decide today? Will you accept Christ? Will you come forward and say, you know what, I've accepted Christ, but I need to be baptized? Do you have a prayer need you need to bring to this, uh, bring to the cross? It's not an altar. We don't sacrifice things here. The sacrifice was made once, and we're done, but we come to the cross, and we lay it there. Would you like me to pray for you? Would you like Tom to pray for you? He'll be over on this side. I'll be over here. Whatever your decision is this morning, you decide what you must do, because we all must do something. And as we stand, and as we sing, you do business with God this morning.